All right, Rabbi Michael Lerner is our guest today. He's an American political activist, author, and the editor of Tikkun Magazine. His newest book, Revolutionary Love, calls for a new consciousness to save our planet. The goal of this new consciousness is to create the caring society. The vehicle to create this new consciousness he calls the love and justice movement. Rabbi Lerner calls for a radical agenda to address the spiritual and psychological needs that both the left and the right have been unable to meet. Welcome to the Growing Down podcast. Hey, hi. So, um, Rabbi Lerner, thank you again so much for being on the show. Obviously, this is a very interesting time in our uh, America's history. Um, and you've been involved um, as an activist all the way back to your Berkeley days, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, actually, only since I was um, 21. <laughs> That, but that was a long time ago, uh, 1964. Oh, okay. Um, so with this going on in, in your history of being involved in, in the movement, um, and, and obviously your new book, Revolutionary Love, um, where do you see uh, the Black Lives Matter movement right now and what's going on, um, just sort of a, a take on, on your perspective um, today throughout, you know, and connecting that back to your history involved in with activism. What's changed? What hasn't changed? Well, <clears throat> a lot hasn't changed. I mean, a lot of similarities between now and previous moments that I've been involved. Um, so I'll start with that I got um, um, moved um, most and at first by attending, walking with the, in the March on Washington in 1963, at which uh, Martin Luther King Jr. made his famous uh, I Have a Dream speech. And um, I, um, so when I went to, uh, I was at an undergraduate at Columbia, and when I went to uh, graduate school at the University of California in Berkeley, um, I encountered the movement on campus. It was basically a movement to support um, the desegregation of um, businesses in the Berkeley area and in, in the Bay Area as a whole. And um, so we were organizing on campus for um, an end to segregation in the hiring and uh, of uh, businesses in the Bay Area. And uh, the university um, forbade that to happen. They said, you can't, you can't uh, advocate on campus for any off-campus illegal activity. Now we were doing sit-ins, so they were, that was an illegal activity. We're sitting in in businesses to uh, challenge their segregation. Um, and um, so I got involved right then in, um, um, they, uh, in, in that movement uh, that was called the free speech movement. I was very deeply into that for, um, until we won, as, as it turned out, we won the battle after they had arrested an awful lot of people or whatever. But, um, so next, <clears throat> so that so my start was really around supporting the um, civil rights movement. But as as uh, I learned quickly, um, that you couldn't separate uh, civil rights here from civil rights elsewhere. And so um, myself and uh, my roommate Jerry Rubin uh, became. Uh, uh, created a, in the fall of, uh, the spring of uh, uh, 65, we created a teach-in on the war in Vietnam. And uh, <clears throat> it was at that teach-in that I learned more and more <clears throat> about American um, domination of the world and why it wasn't good for the world. And it wasn't good for us either. Um, in the next year after that, uh, Jerry Ribbon and I, um, created the idea um, uh, asking um, African-American leadership in SNCC and uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and other uh, uh, civil rights organizations in the South that had, that had told their white members, 
go away. We want, um, we want our organizations to be about black power and we don't want your organizations to be dominated by white people. Um, so, um, uh, but they then, um, so people would risk their lives, in some cases given their lives. Um, uh, um, so some of, some of those people said, well, what should we do? And they, they said, what you need to do is to organize white people. Don't come and try to organize black people. Don't try to organize people of color. Go to white people and organize them. So we decided, okay, we'll create a, um, uh, a teach-in about black power so that to help people understand why it was that the world needed black power. And yet at the same time, we weren't trying to organize uh, black people, we were organizing white people. Well, nevertheless, there was a group of people who turned to us, uh, black people around, around us who turned to us and said, you have no right to do this. This is our issue, <laughs> right? So here we were, and it, it, it highlighted a very important early truth. Namely, when somebody says to you, follow black leadership, you have to uh, say, you know, that's not an adequate guide because there are black blacks who are um, take one path and blacks who take another path. It's not enough to say I'm following black leadership. You have to ask which of those leaderships and, and we have to then decide amongst the various leaderships, which are the voices that we wanna listen to because each one of those voices will be saying, listen to us. So, um, so, so the, the voice that said, go organize white people and you organize it or, and teach them about what's going on in, in, in terms of the lives of black people, um, that's what we were doing. But there were other black people who were saying, no, that's our task, we're gonna do that. So, um, so that, um, that showed me that there was a problem um, in uh, saying, listen to the most oppressed. Turns out that the most oppressed are people who are the absolute experts on describing and witnessing and experiencing their own experience, their own experience of oppression. But to be oppressed doesn't necessarily mean you're the expert on how to get out of the oppression, okay? Actually, there's not a lot of good evidence that, that people who are oppressed are the best strategists for getting out of that oppression, okay? In fact, if we were to say where we are right now, we would say um, that is not the case, okay? Um, so, uh, and I learned this in another way because um, I was watching soon thereafter, in, um, already by 1967, um, the, um, uh, the actions of the State of Israel, um, um, when after defending itself from what seemed like a reasonable need to be defend itself in 67, they had conquered the um, um, parts of the West Bank and, and Gaza. And, um, and, um, and instead of at that point, turning around to Palestinian refugees and saying, okay, we clearly uh, showed our strength. Now we wanna invite you back. We wanna bring back people. We want you to be able to go back to your homes. We want to act in a generous way. They acted in a way which has led to um, the last, uh, whatever number it is from 67 to, to now, um, uh, number of years in which Israel occupied and um, in many cases uh, brutalized Palestinians. So, um, um, and that was our response to our oppression. That was, a, that was a bad response. It wasn't a smart response. In other words, people, um, Israelis are largely still a traumatized people. People in trauma are not necessarily the smartest people to know how to get out of the trauma. So, so um, all right. So um, I've had a long history, okay, around, uh, around, this, uh, around these issues of um, experiencing um, both the legitimate desire of people for liberation and their self-defeating um, paths that they often take. Um, and I say I learned it from the, the Zionist movement and, the, um, and um, 
how uh, what Jews did, but then I saw the same thing happening in almost every movement I've been part of. So um, I don't want to try to take up all the time giving you my history, except to say, I'll just give a few little highlights, namely that um, I was chair of Berkeley Students for Democratic Society from 1966 to 68. And then um, after, um, uh, sending my draft card back to the draft board and telling them that if, I, if you draft me, uh, I'll either go to Canada or I'll go into the army and organize against you in the army, and organize against the war. Um, and then um, in 69, I ended up being a professor or a visiting professor of, of um, uh, philosophy. Uh, my PhD uh, was in philosophy, my first PhD was in philosophy. Um, and um, at the University of Washington. And I organized a, a big demonstration um, that, uh, against the war and against racism. That demonstration at the federal courthouse was, um, was attacked. We're standing around, we had, we had wanted to do a teaching with the, the judges and we had sent them information saying, here's what we wanna do, we'll be down there on such and such a time. Instead of them wanting to hear any of us, the doors were locked and um, suddenly as we're milling around waiting for trying to decide what to do, um, the police come attacking us, hundreds of them <laughs> attacking us. Well, in the, uh, in the melee that followed that, there was um, some rocks thrown at the courthouse window, uh, windows and or paint thrown at the, um, on the, uh, the courthouse. And um, I got indicted by the, but, um, as part of what they then called the Seattle Seven um, for, um, uh, and for two things. Um, uh, riot, um, uh, crossing state lines, using the facilities of interstate commerce with the intent of inciting to riot. And, um, and um, uh, a conspiracy to destroy federal property, namely the, the so in the course of the trial, um, um, in the midst of this trial, the, um, one of their undercover agents, because you always have some undercover agents who are um, going to be the ones who are saying, throw the rocks, <laughs> you know, who are the ones who are uh, gonna go and be the ones breaking the windows as they are doing, doing right now. Many of them people are, I mean, some of the people are, are real regular demonstrators, but they've been incited to do it by, by um, police who are there looking like, and I remember the day, the day after this, that, that happened, when the demonstration happened, I was, since I was the, um, the professor who was involved uh, and sort of the most famous um, person, uh, the media said, what do you have to say about all this? And I said, I re deeply regret the, um, the, the destruction of any property that was destroyed. However, today in the same time, um, the United States destroyed not only the same amount of, uh, way more property in, in bombing in uh, Vietnam, but also hundreds of lives, you know? Uh, and so then I go to a meeting of the, some of the activists that night and one guy stands up and in a very, a, attractive but nevertheless hippie uh, outfit and looking, says, who the hell gave Professor Lerner the right to apologize for us? What we did was the best thing ever. We, sh we should be proud of ourselves for, for standing up and breaking, you know, throwing those rocks, etc." He At the trial, he turned out to be one of the undercover agents who testified <laughs> against us. And um, uh, so, um, but another undercover agent in under cross-examination, um, um, but he was somebody who wasn't in the employ of the government. He was somebody who had volunteered for the government to in, uh, infiltrate us and, um, and report on what we were doing. Under cross-examination, he admitted that the FBI had um, bought and brought the paint to, um, uh, to throw on the building and that the FBI had brought the, the, the rocks because there are no rocks in downtown Seattle. If you've ever been there, it's all paved over. You can't find a rock if you wanted to throw it. The government had brought them there. Okay, well, um, so 
my notion of what the government can do, um, I had personal experience of, right? Um, didn't keep me from getting sent to uh, penit the federal penitentiary for a while um, for contempt of court. Now, of course, I had a lot of contempt for that court, I have to admit, but, but that, the actual basis that they had for it was ludicrous, and it was overturned um, uh, a few months later. Uh, it was overturned, but for a while I was inside this federal penitentiary, and I got to see something else that I would have never believed, um, which is um, I, had, I, I knew that the, the left had a line that said, Oh, all the people in prison are really, a lot of them are really good people. They haven't done very much or e evil or whatever, or their, their, cir cir their life circumstances caused them to be there. And I didn't believe it. I was scared to death to go into that prison, okay? I was very unhappy about it. Didn't want to be in there, um, uh, federal penitentiary. Um, but actually, I did meet a lot of people. Uh, after uh, the first part in which I was kept in solitary, but then eventually when it turned out that I wasn't going to be let out right away, they, they let me out in, into the larger conversation and uh, to be, you know, in the, to have some time to be in the, um, with other, other inmates. And I met a lot of um, people and they seemed like wonderful people and I talked to them about what they had done and so, et cetera. And, most of the circumstances led me to believe um, that the left was not lying about who is in prison. So I also had the experience of um, there, there, were, there were a core of uh, Nazis in that prison also, um, people who hated Jews and so forth and uh, hated demonstrators, hated, hated lefties of any sort. And, um, uh, and they wanted, and they, I was at that point the most famous prisoner in there because uh, our trial had been covered by the, on, on the news and the, the television news uh, every day for the weeks that it was going on. So, um, uh, so what was I going to do when these people wanted to, to kill me? Well, the answer was I was protected by the Black Panthers in the, uh, in the prison because they knew that I was, I, I had been working with the Pan Black Panther Party before going there. The part of my demonstration that I had organized was in defense of Bobby Seale, who was the chair of the, of, of the Panther Party. And so I saw in real terms what solidarity meant. Solidarity meant that they got into the fights with these people rather than me, who was basically a chicken shit, who was not the kind of person who, wanted, who knew uh, how to fight or anything like that. Um, Anyway, so um, again, I had a sense of strong solidarity and caring about um, uh, the African-Americans who were in prison and um, many of them being people who had gotten there because they wanted to strand up and defend their own people. Just what the Jews had wanted to do when we defended, um, when, when we um, tried to create a state of our own to protect ourselves. Um, because during the Holocaust, one out of every three, um, one out of every three Jews alive on this planet in 1940 was murdered by 1945. So um, Jews needed something like uh, a state to, for protection. And, um, and I wish that the, the African-Americans had found, out, found a way to get a state for themselves. You know, if there's one, one point when some people were saying, some people in the black community are saying, yeah, we should have the, the several states in the South as our states and, um, and be given to us so we can create a separate nation, a black nation here. Anyway, that, so moving right along, I would say, um, yeah, I'm deeply concerned about black, uh, um, black lives and Black Lives Matters and, um, and um, want to struggle on their behalf. However, I wanted to say one other thing. Um, we will never win that battle unless we have a lot of white people on our, on, on our side, unless we have a lot of white people who understand why racism is not in their interests. And it was that, this that led me to decide um, to try to understand um, in uh, what was driving white people. Why were white people, um, particularly in the 19, uh, late 70s and early 1980s when, they, when uh, Reagan was elected, why would they vote against their own economic interests? How could they be so silly or stupid? And, um, and so 
Uh, I had, um, after getting out of prison, I, got, I went and got a second PhD in clinical psychology to try to understand the dynamics. And what I found, what I learned in that, um, well, what, so then after I got that second PhD, um, I um, was able to get a, 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 a research grant from the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, J. Edgar Hoover, when, when I was on prison, had said, um, Michael Lerner is one of the most dangerous criminals in America. Now, I had never done anything. I had never thrown a rock. I had never done, done any act of violence. But I could see where he was coming from because um, I had been able to reach and speak to people in a way that moved them. And that was what was made me dangerous. Um, I don't know. I didn't deserve one of the most dangerous. But anyway, I, I could see where he thought I was a little dangerous. Um, so, so it was amazing that to me that after getting this PhD, that I got a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health um, uh, to study the psychodynamics of work and family life. And my particular interest in that was to focus on understanding why people were moving, who were who are working class people, because this was focused on middle income working people, not upper middle class people, not, not students from wealthy families or anything, but um, working class people. Um, now, not just white working class people, but also people of color, but nevertheless, listening to them about why some of them were moving to the right. And eventually this research involved uh, talking to th uh, and um, interviewing uh, thousands of people. It was a very big uh, grant. And uh, uh, anyway, so, um, and what I learned was this, that many people who have encountered the left have felt disrespect. They felt that the people on the left didn't really understand them and disrespected them. And that was a major thing. I couldn't understand how they thought that, but as they told me their stories, I began to understand it. Now, one part of that had to do with the fact that many of the uh, many of those people, including people in the people of color, had an affinity with uh, some kind of church or some kind of religious practice. And what they found in the the left was that if you hung out with left people in um, the, the, um, the left was very clear, it wanted people who were religious to join our demonstrations and become part of our movement. But when you hang out with them, you hear people making comments, the conclusion of which was something like this. Yeah, we want them to be with us, but basically we think that their, their religious stuff is ludicrous, ridiculous. Uh, um, and it just shows why they're working class people because they're less intelligent than us. If they were more intelligent, they would evolve eventually. Maybe if they hang out with us long enough, they will involve, evolve to a higher level of consciousness in which they'll see that all that religious stuff and spiritual stuff is nonsense, has no place in, our, in, uh, in the life of any um, uh, serious person, and they'll become like us. So that was experienced by, uh, by people who heard that. And they heard it in a whole variety of different ways, but that was basically what they were telling us they were hearing in, in left circles, um, made them feel like, hey, these people have nothing but contempt for us. Even though they want us to be in their movement, they actually think that we're in a lower place than them. Um, and um, so that was, uh, um, that was a, an eye-opener to me. Uh, that they would think that um, at, a, at a certain point in the process of uh, doing this thing, I wasn't always, I didn't come from a family that, um, that wore a, a kippah, a, um, a, a head covering, um, the traditional Jewish, uh, it's called in English, they call it yarmulke, but in, in Hebrew it's kippah, something. Um, I didn't come from that family but I was moving towards wanting to do that. So I, I asked the people in the, in the groups, what would you feel like if I were to wear a kippah? Would you feel like less trusting me? And they said, no, on the contrary, 
we trust the religious people a hell of a lot more than we trust a psychologist or an, a social activist. So, so, all right, that was good, good information to have. Um, so I, I stopped worrying about that. The other thing happened is that this, the first week I started to wear this, um, somebody stops me in the street in Berkeley and says, take off the cap, kike. Okay, now I've never heard anybody call, say that before, but that's because I wasn't out as a Jew. The second I got out as a Jew, it was like the same thing that uh, black people experience all the time when they're out as black, because they're, they're, you know, or out as, uh, out as a Ch uh, Chicano, or a Latino, or out as an uh, Asian American. When you can be seen that way right away, you're much easier to be a target. So, and that actually convinced me to stay, stay with this. I wanted, to, I wanted to understand it and experience what it was like to be out as a Jew. And um, I, I had a second experience a week later with somebody else doing the same thing, knocking, I stopped at a, uh, at a stoplight and somebody's knocking on the, the door of my car and saying, um, get out of here, we don't need any Jews around here. Eh, Berkeley, California, you never think it would happen, but it, it happens. Anyway, um, moving right along, um, I, I learned something very important about um, uh, the way that people felt disrespected. Now, there was another element, um, another element to this. Well, well, all right, on the religion element, there was something else first, which was that what I learned in talking to people and raising these issues to them about, um, uh, uh, was that about why they would care about their religion is I learned that many, many people um, have a desire for some kind of higher meaning and purpose to their lives than the ethos of the capitalist marketplace. Um, so, um, because the, ca the capitalist marketplace um, puts forward the notion that what everybody really wants is more money um, and, um, and uh, more m money and power. So, um, but I listened to people as they started to talk about their lives deeply. And what I learned was, no, a lot of people would like to live in a world where there's something else besides money and power um, to guide their lives and to guide the lives of others. Um, so I would ask them, or and our other interviewers, because I had a whole team of um, team of researchers who were doing this with. So we would ask them, um, okay, well, why don't you say something to your fellow fellow workers about wanting that kind of higher meaning and purpose and being um, fed up with the way that the world of work is organized? And their answer was like this: um, I, you know, I hate living in this kind of a world, but everybody else is so selfish and materialistic that there's no chance of changing anything. I'd, so we'd say to them something like, well, where'd you learn that from? And they'd say, well, everybody's taught us, taught us that from the very earliest times we were kids, that we should, you know, that this is what people are like and that we need to protect ourselves. And, in the, and just, I've come to believe that that's really true. And we're saying, oh, well, you've internalized the key, a key message of the capitalist system. So, um, and they, they didn't realize that until they uh, started to think about it that way. But then, um, uh, then I said, but anyway, okay, so these people uh, uh, don't respect you so much, but um, why would you go to the right when they disrespect you even less? And, they, and so they told me another thing that became critical in my understanding of what's going on in society, and it was this. Um, now, this wasn't so easy to get to, but people got it and talked about it a lot. Um, they believed another key element of the capitalist, um, the, the, the um, ideology of capitalism, the worldview of capitalism. And that other element is this, that this is a meritocracy. And that, um, in other words, it's a society based on merit, a meritocracy. And um, so if your life isn't so fulfilling, either in the world of work or in, the, or in family life, there's nobody to blame but yourself. You screwed it up. You could have had any, any life you wanted, but you screwed it up. You failed in some way or other, something that you did wrong. Now, as we started to 
explored this theme of self-blaming, we began to see that um, huge parts of the population hold a self-blaming story. I've come to believe that almost everybody with incomes below, let's say the top 10% of income earners, hold a self-blaming story that goes something like this. If only I had, and then they fill it in in a lot, a lot of different ways. If only I had studied harder when I was in high school or in college. Um, if only I had not goofed off. If only I had been more subservient to my first boss. Um, if only I had whatever. And people have huge varieties of how that is filled in. But the conclusion is, I screwed up. I was a failure because, I'm, and um, uh, women often had this uh, version of that story said, if only I were more attractive, if only I had been born with, um, uh, with uh, if my parents had taught me how to have more charm, to charm men or whatever. Um, whatever, in other words, wide variety of contents, but everybody uh, having filled in their self-blaming story. Now their self-blaming story is exactly what the ruling elites of this country want you to have. They want you to feel that it's your fault that you're not getting what you want. And that, that message is um, drilled into us from the earliest time we get into kindergarten. Hey, study hard here, learn, learn what we have to teach because you can be the president of the United States someday. You know, and boy, when, they get, when the Obama became president, boy, did that get reinforced dramatically for everybody. Hey, you could have been him. Well, <laughs> um, but the truth of the matter is that there's a class structure in the society, that there's, uh, um, a, that yes, there are some people who can w move up the, the ladder. A very small percentage of people can do that. Um, and they get held up to you as the example of what could have happened to you. But it, can't, it doesn't happen to you. It couldn't possibly happen to you uh, unless some other people went down the class ladder. <laughs> okay, so, um, so it's uh, the, and studies that have been done, the New York Times actually did a systematic study back in 2008, in which it showed that the amount of class mobility was like 3% over the course of the last 40 years. Okay, very small percentage of people were able to move themselves up from, let's say, poor to um, working class or working class to more successful uh, or more successful in the working class to being a professional or up from the professional to being a, an actual owner of capital. Very, very small percentage of people. So, um, but they're carrying this self-blaming story around. Now, I um, came to the conclusion very quickly, then the left has to challenge that publicly. It has to make this a focus of, their, of our public discourse to help people understand that it's not your fault, that you were, um, it was, now we were up against also not only the, the teachings from the school and, and, in, and reinforced in the media daily in every kind of, um, every kind of sitcom and um, the, the idea that some people are gonna have more power over others. And the, uh, but it was also, um, it was so deep inside people. And so we needed to have a counter message that no, it's not a meritocracy and that you are just as smart often. I mean, let's say um, we, and there were tests that proved this, that the distribution of smarts is just, you know, just equal in the working class as it is from the ultra rich. It's just that they know they've had the advantage uh, or disadvantage, depending on how you see it, of knowing how to dominate and control and get power over other people. So, um, so we were trying to help people understand that. And what, we, what our study showed was that when you um, decreased self-blaming, you increased power, sense of power in people, their sense of efficacy, their ability to act with power or effectiveness in the world. And similarly, when you decrease self-blaming, you decrease family, um, family pain because um, when people feel terrible about themselves and they don't have the power to act it out in the world of work, where do they act it out? On their kids and sometimes on their spouse. So, um, so over a, a large number of people, we got to show that if you increase their 
decrease their self-blaming, you increase their power, and you increase their ability to have fulfillment in their personal life. But this is a tough one to get through to people because there's pop psychology and pop, uh, pop religion, and both of them um, have the same bad meritocratic message. And it goes like this. You created your own reality, and you can change it just by yourself. Well, it turns out that certainly we, we participate in creating the reality we li live in, but we live in a world in which, um, as we see, see it now in this uh, more, most dramatically, but we were, we're seeing it in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, there's a racism. That racism is not going to go away because you decided you wanted to be um, um, uh, to take care of yourself. It doesn't go away and it, it creates a tremendous barrier between people. And, um, um, and similarly, there's a class structure that makes it very, very hard for people to change their circumstances, no matter how smart they are or how hard they work. Um, but people on top were saying, um, no, um, you're there because you, that's where you deserve to be. And um, now, um, so people went to the right. Why did they go to the right? Because the right had a different message. The right said to them, you know, you're in pain in this society. Okay, now that was already something important to recognize and acknowledge. And it's not your fault. Now, those two messages are enough to have given tremendous credibility to the right for people who are in pain and feeling like it was their, their fault. But then what the right does, and this is, um, is it says, you know what, whose fault it is? It's the fault of the demeaned others of our society. They don't use the word demeaned others. They say um, uh, African-Americans, Native Americans, people of color, um, uh, refugees, feminists, um, liberals, progressives, um, all these others, and you could go on and name many others, right? Um, uh, all the, all the, the gays and lesbians, and you know, they have a whole list of who's to blame, and they keep on expanding it, okay? But in other words, you deflect this onto these others and say, they're the ones who are screwing up your life. They only care about themselves. They're the source of selfishness. Now, this is ironic because, of course, the the capitalist order is the major source of selfishness. It's the source that says, we who have more power and more wealth than everybody else in the society. Okay, there are three people um, in, in the country, and I'm forgetting their names at the moment, but three people in the country have more wealth than the bottom 50% of population. Okay, these three people own more wealth than the 50% of the population. Can you believe it? But it's true. And it's so um, uh, you can't get there. You can't move up into that ladder. They, but they want you to feel like, um, you know, there's, the reason why you're there is because these other people are screwing it up. The, the people of color, the, peop uh, the, the women uh, who are feminists, the, um, uh, the gays and lesbians, the, all, and the list goes on and on. The Jews, the Muslims, the the people who are seeking asylum here. They're all the people who are gonna screw everything up and undermine because they just care about themselves. They don't care about you. So um, a, an effective liberal and progressive movement has to challenge the meritocracy on the one hand, but also the ex explanation of why people are in the situation they're in by helping them understand um, what really generates selfishness is the ethos of the capitalist marketplace. Because day in and day out, people are in a workplace where their only value is um, judged by how much they are going to contribute to the old bottom line. So eventually, um, uh, um, we started Tikkun magazine, T-I-K-K-U-N. Tikkun is the Hebrew word. It means to heal, repair, and transform the world. It started out as a liberal Jewish magazine, but now it's interfaith and welcoming to secular humanists who don't have no religious commitment whatsoever, doesn't, don't believe in uh, any kind of spiritual dimension. But uh, so Tikkun, um, you can look it on, on the web at tikkun.org, T-I-K-K-U-N.org. Um, tikkun um, was a way for us to try to 
put these ideas out in, uh, into the world and spread the ideas and teach people about, um, about what we had learned. Um, and um, uh, that is, so undermining self-blaming, helping people, uh, affirming people's desire for some higher meaning and purpose in life, um, uh, challenging the class structure, recognizing that the pain comes from the capitalist order and that when if, if you see people around you are selfish um i mean we asked those people i said um well you know they said well everybody's selfish in the society we asked them uh, are your friends all you know think of your top 10 friends are they all selfish and they think about it for a while and then they come back and say no they're not selfish it's just everyone else who's selfish okay so that, in other words, they still held on to the belief that it was that way, even though their own experience was something different, right? And uh, that people just looking after themselves. Similarly, um, when um, uh, in, in my new book, uh, Revolutionary Love, a, um, uh, a, a political manifesto to heal and transform the world, that new book brings up as examples um, many places in our lives where we've seen people go and risk their lives to save the lives of other people that they don't know that they can care that actually we can care for other people even if we don't know them for example in those people who who um came down to the um the burning towers of, um on in 9 11 and um and risked their lives going into those buildings and three over 300 of those who went in died as a result amazing acts of courage to go in and try to pull out people who are in these buildings and um, um, so you can see you can see it right in front of you that people were actually acting out of care for other people that they don't know and um, so in, in any event what I came to was understanding that we need a whole different way of thinking about what counts in this world and I put it this way we need a new bottom line the old bottom line, the one that runs our institutions, is used by the corporations, is used by the media all the time, is the notion that you are productive, efficient, or rational to the extent that you maximize money and power. And the more money you have, then it looks like you're the more the more rational you are. They even have uh, the media is filled with interv interviews with the richest people because they're supposed to be smartest because they got money. Okay. No, they're more ruthless, but it doesn't mean uh, smarter. Um, but in any event, the, um, um, so we need a new bottom line. And so what we've come up with um, in Tikkun and in the movement that I'm now calling a love and justice movement, um, uh, and you can read about it in uh, the book, Revolutionary Love. But by the way, there's, this, there's another revolutionary love book out by a woman, very nice woman, but it's not the book that, um, that you need to get. You need to get the one from Michael Lerner, L-E-R-N-E-R, -E <laughs> that one. Um, so, um, but in the book, I lay out what this new uh, bottom line would look like. It's like this. Let every institution, corporation, government policy, our healthcare system, our, uh, our legal system, our education system, our cultural systems, be judged efficient, rational, and productive to the extent that they maximize people's capacities to be loving and caring, kind and generous, ethically and environmentally sensitive, capable of supporting uh, social and economic justice for all, and treating other human beings, seeing other human beings as embodiments of the sacred, rather than looking at every human being in your life or most human beings from the standpoint of what can you do for me? Will you do something to maximize my needs? And similarly, um, uh, looking at the earth and looking at the earth with awe and wonder and radical amazement at the grandeur of this universe and the mystery of it all, rather than looking at it and saying, gee, I wonder if there's something here I can turn into a product and sell and make a buck out of this earth. Um, so this is a different bottom line, right? It's a new bottom line. Um, and I could say it even in 60 seconds, I probably took a minute and a half now, but uh, you can get into a 60 second soundbite. Um, uh, that, new, uh, that new bottom line, actually when people hear it, they say, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. I'd love to live in a world like that. 
Only nobody will do it. It's unrealistic. So forget it. It'll never happen. And here, what I have to say is, um, you know, when people say it's unrealistic, um, I want to say back to them, you never know what is possible until you struggle for what is desirable. Okay, you never know what is possible until you struggle for what is desirable. Because um, when Martin Luther King Jr. started to, um, to become part of a civil rights movement, most of the other black um, ministers came to him and said, don't do this. You know, you're gonna, um, there's no reason why you should ruin your uh, credibility in the, in the black church by becoming politicized. Don't get involved in that struggle. Well, he refused to be realistic, okay? And as a result, the movement that he helped um, uh, support became extremely effective for the while that it was idealistic and fighting for fundamental change. And it won some things, although the things it won are now um, in danger of being taken away. Um, but that's, a, that's, that's the story of what happens when you act in a put-downish way towards people who are not yet with you. I think I'm going to diverge here and go on to that theme for a second. I, I could also mention, look, the same thing happened with the women's movement. A, a small group of women, they're probably not more than 200 women in the, in the 60s who became feminists and said, um, we want uh, uh, to replace um, pa the patriarchy. We want uh, women to have not just a legal right to vote, but we want to have women have equal rights to men. Um, that those 200 women were continually being told, be realistic, it'll never happen. Don't you know, as one person's put it, dear, don't you know that patriarchy has been around for 10,000 years? You're going to change it? A bunch of women in Berkeley and in, uh, and in uh, uh, San Francisco and in New York and uh, Cambridge and Ann Arbor and uh, um, a few other places. You think you're going to change the world? But they did. Actually, they did. Um, so um, you never know what is possible until you struggle for what is desirable. But that doesn't, won't happen right away. And for the first 10 or 15 years, you're going to do that. Everybody's going to say you're loco. But then after, after the, you, you get a lot of people behind you, then they turn around and say, oh, yeah, well, that was inevitable. It was always going to happen that, that way. Okay. So uh, uh, they never credit the acti activists um, who are doing what they're doing. But to get back to um, this other theme of not putting down the people you need um, to influence, the left has been expert at putting down people who are not with us. And um, uh, the most extreme example was uh, in, uh, in 2016 when two months before the election, Hillary Clinton says, um, yeah, the people who are not with us, 50% um, of them are a, um, a, um, a bundle of um, deplorables. Now, that message that she said publicly and so forth was repeated, was picked up by the right, and they played that message on uh, um, Fox News and on every possible right-wing radio station over and over again, day after day after day. And um, so when I went to interview people um, after the election about why they had voted the way in which they did, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll just give you one example. I, I, a woman that I know who went down to the South to try to um, try to get people um, to uh, support Hillary. Um, and uh, she was staying at close friends of her, friends of hers who was, had been uh, um, a liberal supporter during uh, her college days. And as she um, was about to leave to go back to vote uh, in her own state, she asked this woman, um, uh, well, it's been very hard, but I, I hope at least you'll vote for Hillary. And the woman said, uh, I haven't decided yet. So this is two days before the election. So she said, look, I know if you're saying you haven't decided yet, it means you, you're going to not vote for Hillary, you're going to vote for Trump. And the woman responded, you know, I haven't decided, I really haven't decided, but I'll tell you this, I'm not a deplorable. And so it was so widespread. And people heard that and they it so confirmed their feeling of how 
what the left thinks about them, what the liberals think about them, that they are deplorable people. And this is extremely destructive and undermines anything else that we have to say, because people don't care if they agree with our programs. Um, fine, they might agree with our programs, but when it comes down to the voting booth, they often vote for who they feel respects them, cares about them. And, it's, uh, and so we need a different kind of social change movement that manifests that caring. I call it in the book, uh, Revolutionary Love, I call it, we need to create the caring society, caring for each other and caring for the earth. Um, now, um, I do think that there's a chance that some of this, these ideas will catch on eventually. Um, but I do want to mention that one of the people who endorsed the book uh, strongly is um, Keith Ellison. Now, Keith Ellison, you, might, you may know, is the, uh, is the attorney general of the state of uh, Minnesota. And he is the one who just indicted the other three policemen who at first were not being charged in the case uh, of the, the murder, um, the, the, the murder case that so, and he's going to be the chief prosecutor there. So, um, if you'll bear with me one second, I want to get a copy of that book, and I'll tell you what he what he said about it. Um, um, sure. So here's revolutionary love, um, and um, you can if if your local bookstore doesn't carry it. You can get it on an online bookstore or, but make sure it's the revolutionary love from Michael Lerner, not from this other woman. Um, but here's what he says. Um, uh, where, oh yeah. The caring society um, is the only realistic path for humanity to survive. And, um, uh, and in revolutionary love, Rabbi Lerner lays out a powerful and compassionate plan for building that caring uh, society. I love this book. Please read it and join with others to build the movement um, uh, that um, enable those ideas um, to, um, to, uh, um, to reshape our, our society which so badly needs that this, this vision. So that's what he, so if you, if you respect one guy who was able to really stand up for um, Black Lives Mattering and act on it right away by indicting those uh, other policemen who claimed, well, we didn't really do it. It was the one who was uh, um, uh, strangling George. Um, so anyway, um, uh, so this is a, a new way of thinking about politics. And um, um, if, you if you want to know more about the book, you can go to tikkun.org slash RLJ. LJ stands for love and justice, but tikkun.org slash forward slash LJ. And you'll hear, hear other people like, um, for example, um, uh, who else in, endorses it? Um, uh, Gloria Steinem, um, you probably have heard of her. Um, Co uh, Cornell West, who is an African-American uh, pro professor of uh, African-American studies at Harvard, who wrote a book called uh, um, uh, Race Matters. And um, there are many, anyway, if anything I said makes sense to you, go read Absolutely, it. Rabbi. It's beautiful. I, I did have a question. Um, I, I know you talked a little bit about the left sort of currently being split between like two parties, one being sort of corporate power, and you really endorsed. Uh, we were all Bernie supporters. You sort of uh, promoted sort of the people power party. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about why does there seem, obviously the corporate versus non-corporate split is obvious, but do you have any other feedback into maybe why there is a split? Well, I mean, there's a good reason for a split. And I hope uh, one of the things I suggest is that we need to build a, um, a love and justice movement inside the Democratic Party and eventually either take it over or split from it. 
because the way it is right now, um, the positions that we care about are continually shuffled aside. And um, I think, well, you know, I, I hope that, uh, um, that uh, um, Trump isn't reelected. But if he isn't reelected and Joe Biden is elected, we're going to see a lot of policies that are very disappointing to us. Um, and um, we need a, an active voice in that party and in the public arena challenging those, uh, those policies, um, even though uh, we need, first of all, to get Trump out of, out of the presidency. Um, but um, there's, but, I, but the left may not ever get to the position of being that powerful. And part of the reason is it devours its own. It tre treats um, people on the left with disrespect, not just working class people, but right now, for example, there's a, camp, um, a sub campaign. Um, the main campaign should be um, Black Lives Matters. We need to change the institutions of, uh, uh, of uh, the world so, uh, so that um, black, black lives are taken care of. And in Tikkun, um, you, could, you will be able to find if you just go to our website and then, um, and then uh, um, ask for, um, I mean, put in your URL, something about um, uh, black lives and what, what we need to do to defend them. And you go, we have a whole um, platform around that and our next issue of the magazine online, because the magazine is now uh, uh, online and not in print, um, is, um, is one that has uh, an, an article by me at the beginning, an editorial that talks about what um, changes would be needed. A lot of people to this day are saying, um, we need system change, but often that only means system change in regard to um, how they um, how blacks are treated in the judicial system. Very important, very, very important. But um, the system won't fundamentally change until we redistribute wealth in this country, until people have enough to live on. Um, so um, uh, anyway, uh, that, uh, but we're not gonna get there, why? Because a lot of people who are in the streets are, um, and are or at least on the Facebook and the, a lot of people think that they're, you know, they're, they're Facebook activists, but what they do is they're, they're engaged in this thing, not of putting down the, the real racist, but instead turning on each other and saying, you know, you've got to renounce your white skin privilege. Okay, you've got to denounce, um, denounce that and um, learn to shut up and not, not talk out and not say anything because who are you? You're a white guy or a white, white woman. That is crazy. That's a crazy way to, to build a movement. What it, what it does is, and I know this from interviewing people um, even here in Berkeley, people who, who were very much Bernie supporters who are now saying, I just don't want to have anything to do with politics because, um, these, because when I put my face in there, they say, um, I'm white. And, uh, in this case, the last I heard it was just a day ago, so a woman saying to me, you know, I'm a white woman and therefore I have no right to say anything because I'm, uh, because I'm white and I should just shut up. And so that is so crazy and self-destructive. And the left is engaged in that at the same time that it's engaged in right, rightfully being in the streets, challenging the racism in the society. It's also um, turning against each other and making everybody else, every, everybody feel unwelcome. Well, that, if you keep that up, you will not only, we will not only lose the, the, 26, uh, the 2020 election, but we will totally destroy the, the good, loving energy that is right now out in the public sphere saying, we want to take, we want to treat people of color as though they are equally valuable and that they are, and, and that we love them and we want to protect them from the racism in this, in this society. That's a loving message. But if you have a hateful message that's saying, everybody who isn't one of the um, people of color is a bad person, you get, it's a gift to the ruling elites of the country. It may, because um, what it does is it pushes people to say, well, if I'm not safe any place, I don't want to have anything to do with politics. 
And so you get masses of people who will not vote, will not go, such so as say, um, a plague on both of their houses. I went to the left and they made me feel like I was um, a piece of garbage, um, you know, because of my color of my skin. They're doing the same thing to me that the racists are doing to uh, people of color. So now, obviously, there's a difference. Most people of, um, uh, who are in the, the left don't feel that they're about to be attacked by policemen just randomly, um, only in demonstrations they feel that way, but they don't feel that in normally in their life. People of color often feel that on a day-to-day -day basis. They wonder about whether they're their teenage, particular teenage sons will come home alive after going to school or going to, going to work or wherever. Um, so it's, it's a different level of craziness and hate, hatefulness that people of color are facing. But still, if you want people to be on your side, don't make them feel bad about themselves. Don't say you're a bad person. On the contrary, see, even people who have bad ideas, we should be treating them with empathy, caring, curiosity about what they, what, why they are not yet with us, rather than thinking that they are automatically an evil person. Because as I said, a lot of people who voted for Trump actually voted for Bernie in the 2016, uh, in, in, in the 2016 primaries. And then they went to Trump. Why? Because, uh, because they were not being respected by the mainstream of the Democratic Party and by ordinary people. And after the election, um, the vast, um, you ask most lefties most, and most liberals, why did you lose in 2016? Their answer, oh, that's simple. Uh, we lost because Americans are racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, uh, anti-Semitic, or they're just plain stupid. Now, this goes back to the whole thing about self-blaming because one of the parts of the self-blaming is you either didn't work hard enough or you weren't smart enough to make it, your life more a success. When you start saying to people that we see them as evil or stupid, you are pushing them towards the right, which says, no, you're not. It's just that those lefties and the, and the people, people of color and whatever, they're, they're bringing these messages to you, but you, we welcome you here. We need a welcoming message a loving and caring message. And that's why the caring society that I describe in, the, in, in this book, Revolutionary Love, is something that should be the foundation for a new kind of left that could actually take uh, a lot of the, um, the uh, um, Bernie supporters and others and, um, and uh, give them the tools to change the, the left. And you have to change the left before you can change the right because uh, I, I know, you know, when we did these groups, people after the groups would say, um, uh, okay, I want to get involved. Where do I go? Well, we weren't a political organization. So we said, well, check it out. What's available? Uh, available. And so they'd go to some of the, those um, organizations and they'd come back to us and say, you know, we can't, we can't get involved because they don't like us. They think, they don't think we're, we're real. They would say, we want to organize the workers. And here I was, I was a worker. They didn't, they, they didn't bother to find out who I was, you know, or what, you know what I'm saying? It's like, um, we want to organize the workers and there are workers right there in your room that you're ignoring. Um, so we need to build a, a kind of left that is supportive, loving, caring, kind, generous, not just aggressive, okay? But loving, caring, kind, and generous. So, well, yeah, I just, my time is pretty much up, so you can say one more thing, but I... I yeah, I was just going to say, you did a wonderful job in the book describing sort of spiritual progressivism, and I know I'm going to steal that line and identify with it, because I think it really speaks to my heart about where the movement should go, um, and uh, I just wanted to say thank you for being on the show, and um, I know you shared where people could find you. Uh, would you like to share again, just where... Uh, uh, mm -hmm. where people could find you? Well, number one, they could join. We, we are doing a training um, of how to, how to be a, um, a spiritual progressive activist. And uh, you go to the website, spiritualprogressives.org slash training. 
spiritualprogressives.org slash training. The training is online, so you can be on it any place in the world. And um, right now we're in, in the middle of our third week of this six-week online training. So, um, so you, you, if you go to that place, uh, you can put your name down to be um, notified when the next training is and how, how to get onto it. So spiritualprogressives.org, spiritualprogressives.org slash um, training. You can read Revolutionary Love and you can get it uh, either at any um, at, uh, online bookstores or you can go to uh, tikkun.org slash LJ, love, love and justice, tikkun, T-I-K-K-U-N.org slash LJ, love and justice. And um, I'd be delighted to get to know anybody who wants to be our allies because we, we certainly want to welcome you. Um, so thank you for doing this, doing this and uh, many blessings on your work. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, Rabbi.